You want to go ahead and read the thing? Oh, yes, I want to go ahead and read the thing. All right. It's a story everybody thinks they know. A group of desperate, underpaid baseball greats sought to stick it to the man and earn their rightful payday, only to find themselves caught, sentenced, and banned for life. The case has taken on mythic proportions from the headlines that called the players the Black Sox to the 1963 book and 1988 film Eight Men Out, a work of entertainment that shaped what people think they understand of this history. It's a story of underdogs, of unfairness and vindictive punishments. It's a weave of myth, legend, and fact irresistible to baseball fans, with clear heroes and villains that resonate today. Sort of. So on this episode of Relative Disasters, we're going to cut through the mythology to the facts of the so-called Black Sox scandal of 1919. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my sister and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Greg, manager of the RDU Disasters. And I'm his sister, Ella, head archivist at the Relative Disasters Hall of Fame. This is a wild story. (laughs) This is a bananas story. I love this story so much, mostly because... So much of the actual facts of the case have been completely replaced by urban legend, conspiracy theory, and a really excellent work of, unfortunately, mostly fiction. It's fantastic. I love this. All right. Okay. So, baseball. Have you ever heard of baseball? A little bit. National (laughs) sport. Yeah. Yeah, They play it in Japan. Oh, yeah. The Japanese are very good at it. It's true. Uh, It's a sport that has been played professionally in the United States since 1857. Really? Yeah, it's been around for a while. Now, with the year 1903 usually being considered as the first year of modern baseball, uh, it is deeply woven into American culture. Even if you don't follow the sport, you'll know a lot of the names. The Yankees, the Red Sox, the Cubs, the Dodgers. Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth, Jackie Robinson, Willie Mays, Joe DiMaggio. The list goes on and on. Baseball's long history has seen expansion, segregation, integration, and above all else, talented and skilled adults being paid a lot of money to play this game. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to start off today by citing the major sources for this piece, which are the fantastic books uh, The Black Sox Scandal and Black Sox in the Courtroom, both by Bill Lamb, Notes from the Shadows of Cooperstown, uh, which was a column by the columnist Gene Carney, and public records available from the National Baseball Hall of Fame, including some fun court transcripts. Oh, boy. All right. So, in 1919, the best team in baseball was the Chicago White Sox, and it was not particularly close. They had one of, if not the best, pure hitters in the sport, a man named Joe Jackson, known as Shoeless Joe Jackson. Uh, They had dominant pitching, which was anchored by the knuckleballer Eddie Seacott and hard-throwing Red Faber. Mm -hmm. And they had one of the biggest payrolls in baseball, supplied by their owner, Charles Comiskey, himself a former ballplayer and manager. Do you know what their budget was? (laughs) I do. I'm going to get to it. It was was pretty decent. All right. The White Sox had won the World Series only two years ago in 1917. And they had just gotten their best players back from serving in the First World War. Most of them didn't, like, serve on the front lines. They had factory jobs and such, but they were, you know, doing that. Helping the war effort. Exactly. And then they came back to play some baseball. 
So in 1919, the White Sox won the pennant by posting a record of 88-52, and 52, led by the bats of shoeless Joe Jackson and second baseman Eddie Collins, and the pitching arms of Eddie Seacott, Lefty Williams, and Red Faber. Their opponents in this series would be the Cincinnati Reds. Hmm. Now, the Reds had never finished higher than third in their division since 1900, but they got the pennant this year, mostly on the strength of great pitching but they couldn't hope to match the bats of the White Sox. So it looked like a matchup of great pitching versus great hitting, strong offense against tight defense, a contest for the ages. The reality, however, was that a fair matchup of the two great teams was never going to happen, as the White Sox players had already signed up to do the unthinkable. They were going to take a dive. Whoa! Right. So, first we have to point out that the 1919 White Sox were a deeply divided team. Mm -hmm. On one side of things, you had Eddie Collins, the second baseman. Uh, His nickname was Cocky for being well-born, well-educated, and very self-assured to the point of arrogance. Mm. Cocky Collins' personality seemed to have split the clubhouse between the players who sided with him and the players who sided with their first baseman, Chick Gandil, uh, a ballplayer with a much more hard-scrabble background. The only thing that the two factions could agree on was that neither of them was fond of their team owner, Charles Comiskey. So Comiskey had developed a reputation as a miser and a skinflint, and many apocryphal stories regarding his frugality have circled this story and just been accepted as fact. Later on, we'll get into some specific myths that need to get put to bed. But the fact was that he, just like every other owner, fought against the players unionizing and enforced his will through the reserve clause. So, we need to take a sidebar about the reserve clause. Yeah, what is that? I've never heard of it. The reserve clause was a nasty piece of contract law that when you boil it down, basically says that if a player refuses to re-sign with the club that has them under contract, they cannot play for any other club unless their team releases them. Mm-hmm. So owners could pay their players whatever they wanted, and if the player refused, they wouldn't be able to play baseball anywhere else. Imagine if your last boss could decide whether you were allowed to quit and go look for another job, and you'll see why these contracts were a problem. Yeah, that's giving me cold chills. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, okay. However, it does need to be pointed out that Comiskey, again, was no worse than any other owner. And in fact, the 1919 White Sox players were among the highest paid in baseball. Mm -hmm. Payroll at the start of that season was over $88,000. For everybody? For the whole team. Mm -hmm. uh, In 1919 money, remember. So they, they, they basically were kind of the Yankees of their day. They just outspent everybody. Okay. The scandal that would erupt sometimes get gets boiled down into, you know, the players are fighting back against their stingy boss, and it's a lot more than that. Okay, so we gotta talk about gambling on baseball. This this is a this is a big deal at this time. Yeah, how um, do you make money on baseball at this time? Well, the best way to gamble on baseball was through game fixing. You have a team come into town who's really supposed to win the game, but they, you know, make a couple errors or they just can't get a hit that day and you know, you you pay them to take a dive, and then you clean up by betting on the on the underdog team. Mm-hmm. So gambling on baseball and game fixing in baseball was a toxic relationship going back decades. Uh, in fact, conspiring to fix a baseball game had first been exposed in 1865. Oh man! Uh, 
Oh, yeah. It's been there for Two seconds after the sport was invented. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, the owners and the clean players mostly had to look the other way, and the integrity of the game was constantly being threatened. Uh, in the first World Series in 1903, there was an attempt to bribe the catcher of the Boston Americans into throwing games. So this was not a new, unique thing. Mm-hmm. In fact, the previous year, rumors swirled that members of the Chicago Cubs had taken $10,000 apiece to throw the World Series against the Boston Red Sox. No, not the Cubbies! Those rumors were unsubstantiated, and to the 1919 White Sox, it looked like a low-risk way to make more than they made in the entire season. In the 1919 season, pitcher Eddie Seacott, remember, one of their best, Mm -hmm. made about $5,000. If they could do it in ways that would be hard to notice and make a bunch of money doing it, what could possibly go wrong? So many of our episodes start with that promise. (laughs) It's such a it's such a great question. It's so universal. (laughs) We're gonna make a ton of money. Nobody's gonna get hurt. Nobody's gonna know. And it's gonna be fine. Everything's fine. What could go wrong? Okay, I love it. I love it. We're off to a great start. All right. So the main conspirators, uh, according to all of the collated data that's been drawn together seemed to be Chick Gandel and Eddie Seacott. And they quickly roped in the Sox's next best starting pitcher, Lefty Williams, and the Sox's hitting superstar, Joe Jackson. Uh, utility infielder Fred McMullen heard about the scheme and threatened to expose them if they didn't cut him in, so oh they boy. did. <laughs> uh, their shortstop, Swede Risberg, he was a very charismatic guy, and his charisma helped pull in center fielder Happy Felsch. Can I just and say, have, I love these yeah. nicknames. Oh, We've got God. Happy, Na- Early shoes, 19th century. Swede, so, chick. Love I love it. it. I just it, Early 19th century baseball player names are like the go-to names if you just want some like amazing early 1900s name. I I love them so much. Uh, And then they they approached third baseman Buck Weaver to round out their gang. So Weaver attended the meetings that the group held in Chick Gandel's hotel rooms, uh, but he wanted no part in the game fixing and refused to take part or take money. And that's important because that comes back to bite him later. Okay. Now they needed to find their gambling partner and they had a good one in a man named Sleepy Bill Burns. I'm sorry, another nickname? I know. I know. It's Sleepy. great. Okay. Sleepy Bill Burns uh, was a former baseball pitcher and a teammate of Chick Gandles. And Eddie Seacott approached him with the deal. For $100,000, the White Sox would throw the World Series to the Cincinnati Reds. The Reds were heavy underdogs, and a fix meant that whoever took the deal would clean up huge. Um, one tiny problem... Sleepy Bill Burns was a heavy gambler, but he didn't have $100,000 just laying around. Right. So he needed to get a financier. So he starts looking around for deep pockets to finance the scheme. And the, the name that jumped out to him and keeps swirling around this story was famed New York gangster Arnold Rothstein. So I'm he sorry. Approaches- Is he a real gangster? Arnold Rothstein was, he was the guy that most of New York's gambling passed through at this time. Okay. So, yeah. Where's this, <laughs> it was a big deal. Where's his nickname? He doesn't get to be like one-eyed uh, or he's, punchy he's one or of those. Well, you see, he's one of those very serious figures, so he it's doesn't be get Arnold. a Okay. He's, he's Arnold Rothstein. <laughs> Mr., I think, was his yeah. nickname. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Um, so the, he tries, so Burns tries to go to Rothstein to be the financier, but Rothstein turns him down. So Burns has to go around looking 
to find somebody else. And in the end, it becomes like a farce uh, Mm. with no less than nine financers involved with different people on the team. It was a mess. Uh, Chick Gandal wanted all the money to pass through him. Oh, boy. And Eddie Seacott was smart enough to demand his $10,000 up front. Yes. Uh, (laughs) That's a good move. So Bill Burns pulls together his own consortium of gamblers, and it was agreed that the White Sox players would be paid in $20,000 installments for each loss. Oh, God. It is important to note that (laughs) neither... This is such a bad idea. Oh, it's so bad. It's so badly set up. Uh, neither Joe Jackson nor Buck Weaver attended any of those meetings. By okay. The way. All right. So no conspiracy is ever airtight, however, and oddsmakers noticed something was up as soon as large bets started to come in on the Reds. By the time the series actually started, the Reds had gone from heavy underdogs to slight favorites. Whoops. And a few. Yep. Uh, and a few baseball writers noticed. That's not how we turn a profit, is it? Well, it is if you get the bets in early enough, I guess. All right. So the 1919 World Series was a bit of an oddball. Instead of being what it usually is, which is a best of seven series, Mm -hmm. it was a best of nine game series because they were still tinkering with the format. Sure. So we're going to get to the games now. And and these are these are all amazing. So game one of the series was on paper a mismatch. Uh, Chicago's starting pitcher was Eddie Seacott, who had won 29 games that year, been instrumental to the White Sox's 1917 World Series victory, and was one of the game's best pitchers. Mm -hmm. The starting pitcher for the Reds was Southpaw Dutch Ruther, who had won a respectable 19 games that season, but prior to 1919, he had won three major league games. Not like the year before, but his entire career before, he had won three major games. He just had a big, he glowed up this year. He this did. is he what's going to happen year. to him? Okay. He had a big year. Yeah. So the first pitch from Seacott was in there for a strike, but with his second pitch, he threw wild and hit the batter, and that was the signal that the fix was on. <laughs> That's the signal. And that was the signal. No. That, Listen, that was when I legitimate. break the batter's nose, this is when it all goes down. Well, they don't hit the batter in the face. You hit the batter in the back. And Seacott was a knuckleball pitcher anyway, so it wasn't like, one, a wild pitch was going to be this huge, you know, oh, my God, he's throwing wild today. But mm-hmm. two... If you get plunked by him, it's only going, you know, 50 miles an hour instead of 90. So it doesn't even hurt that bad. Um, I don't know, Greg. So, that still sounds really No, painful. getting hit by a baseball sucks. But if you if you have to get hit by a baseball, get hit by a knuckleball because it's not traveling that fast. Okay. Okay. All right. So Seacott hits the batter, but he still pitches well for most of the game. However, mm-hmm. he couldn't seem to get anybody out in the fourth. So by the time the fourth inning rolls around, he gets himself in a lot of trouble. And by the time their manager takes him out, the Sox were down six to one. Mm-hmm. Cincinnati tacks on three runs by the end of it, and they win the game nine to one. However, when the White Sox players go back to their hotel, they get stiffed on their payments, uh, with the gamblers telling them that all the money was out on bets and they'd get paid after the next game. Uh-oh. So, you know, that's not great. We're off to a great start here, boys. They're they're still in. They're still doing it. Okay. Uh, and it's worth pointing out that through all of these games, the conspirators played smart. You know, it would be an error here, some bad pitches there, nothing mm-hmm. that would be out of the ordinary for a run of bad baseball luck. They're not like walking onto the team and pretending they forgot how to throw a ball. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. It's like, you know, a, a minor fielding mistake here, it's a pitch believable. that's slightly too high there. Exactly. It's it's. All of the stuff that they did could be chalked up to a ball player just having a bad day. Okay. 
So, in fact, there are people uh, even today that believe that none of the, the White Sox actually tried to throw any games. They all played as well as they could play. They just lost um, and took the money anyway. So we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Okay. All right. So thanks to Lefty Williams having a terrible fourth inning, uh, the Reds would win the next game 4-2. to two. Mm-hmm. With the conspirators now owed $40,000, the gamblers pay them 10000 and the players begin to get concerned about a double cross. <laughs> oh, gosh, why? Yeah. <laughs> From where so, I sit, they're positioned perfectly to get away with everything. So whether the series was fixed beyond the first two games mm-hmm. is a matter of some debate. The Sox come roaring back to win the third game behind an excellent pitching performance by Dickie Kerr, who was not a member of the Fixers, but everybody behind him played really well too. And in game four, Eddie Seacott takes the mound again and delivers the kind of pitching duel that was much more like him, locking down the Cincinnati batters for most of the game. However, he also made two key errors, and those errors were the difference in a 2-0 Reds win. Hmm. It's important to note that, fix or not, the White Sox were having a lot of trouble hitting in the series. As I said before, the strength of the Reds was in their pitching, and they were handling the Chicago batters. Neither the clean or dirty players could get hits, at one point going 26 straight innings without scoring. Okay. Yikes. That sounds really unusual for professional baseball. Is that something that would happen now? It is something that would happen now if you are up against really, really good pitching, and they were. Okay. They really were. Okay. Okay. Game five wound up being another lockdown as the White Sox only get three hits in a 5 nothing loss. Hmm. With the Reds up four games to one, the series was almost over. Now, there's a lot of uncertainty, again, about the gamblers during this time. The group led by Sleepy Bill Burns had been told by Chick Gandle that they weren't throwing any more games without getting the money that was promised to them. But since there was another, possibly two or three factions of gamblers that the Sox were taking money from, mm-hmm. the whole thing is a mess. Right. Uh, The players later said that more than the initial $10,000 payment was dispersed to them, but who made the payoffs, how much money in total was paid out, how much of that money Chick Gandle kept for himself, we don't actually know. Okay. What we do know is that the fact that the series was fixed was well known in gambling circles at the time. Hmm. All right, so game six. It looks like it's going to be the end for the White Sox, as the Reds put up four runs on them early. In the later innings, though, Buck Weaver and Joe Jackson help spark a rally to tie the game at four, and then the Sox win it in dramatic fashion in extra innings. Uh, Game seven, another White Sox victory, with Eddie Seacott running a masterclass from the mound, and the Sox finally getting the hits they needed for a four-to-one win. So they're one win away from tying up the series. Okay. And the Sox turn to Lefty Williams next, who had been so steady during the regular season. And it pitched well in the series, but had big doses of that bad baseball luck. In Game 8, Williams didn't even make it out of the first inning, and the White Sox get shellacked, losing 10-5. to five. Hmm. And those five were like a late-inning gift. It could have easily been 10-1. to one. Oh, boy. Okay. So, the series is over. The Reds have won. And while most baseball writers were celebrating the underdog Reds' victory, the New York Daily World columnist Hugh Fullerton wrote this dour piece that stated unequivocally that he believed that the series had been fixed and stated that he believed that at least seven of the White Sox had been involved. Hmm. Now, a little sidebar about Hugh Fullerton. Basically, um, all of the sort of stat, uh, statistic and uh, performance-based monitoring that that most serious baseball people do today mm-hmm. would 
Fullerton is kind of the godfather of that movement. He made up hitting charts and kept shorthand notes that, you know, would show, like, statistically how a player did during a game and how good a player was at doing certain things. He was light years ahead of his time. He would make predictions Mm -hmm. that were, like, scary good. Um, Sounds like Moneyball. It's a lot like that. Basically, all the stuff that... uh, that Michael Lewis talks about in the book Moneyball Mm -hmm. all traces back to Fullerton. Interesting. So, for example, in the 1906 World Series, Mm -hmm. Fullerton predicted that not only would the Chicago White Sox, who were considered to be a very weak-hitting team at that time, Mm -hmm. not only would they beat the Chicago Cubs, who were a world-beater at that time, he predicted that the White Sox would win Game 1, Game three, the Cubs would win game two, and it would rain on the fourth day. <laughs> I just really love that finishing touch. Yeah, and and he was completely, completely right. <laughs> he got the weather right as well? He got the weather oh right God. as well. That is impressive. Like, this is this is the kind of guy we're talking about here. This, this, this is a statistician statistician. All right. However, organized baseball did not want the headaches and scandal and fellow baseball writers dismissed Fullerton's assertions as sour grapes that his prediction of an easy White Sox win hadn't come true. Hmm. Fullerton didn't let it go, but baseball fans didn't give it much thought as the offseason and the 1920 season began. One person who was listening, however, was Charles Comiskey. He had heard rumors, and some sources say that Buck Weaver himself had tried to come to him with this story before the first game of the series uh, and tell him that players were trying to fix it Mm -hmm. Uh, and Comiskey had hired private detectives to look into it the detectives didn't dig up much but there was some suspicious spending on the parts of Chick Gandel and a few others Comiskey kept digging and finally found some gamblers who were willing to spill the beans angry at their losses in game three and the other games where the Sox had won Mm -hmm. so Comiskey had a choice blow the scandal wide open and risk financial repercussions or keep silent and keep making money Oh, boy. That's a tough one. Which one one do you think he chose? (laughs) Well, you know, I'm not a person who likes to make waves. I would go for option B. But uh, at the same time, I think I'd feel really, really guilty if I didn't go for option A. Well, he wouldn't feel really guilty about it at all because he could lie in bed uh, covered in money. Uh, So Comiskey chooses the path of self-interest and buries the findings. He then goes on to re-sign the conspirators, most of whom got nice raises as well, uh, with the exception of Chick Gandalf. Comiskey lowballs Gandal, and Gandal rejects the offering, allowing Comiskey to activate that reserve clause and blackball him from playing baseball. Mm. Gandal really didn't care. He had pocketed about $35,000 from the scam. He's got his own money blanket. Mm-hmm. And cheerfully retired to California, hey. where he and his wife bought a nice house, and he played some outlaw ball and non-organized baseball teams. Nice. So the 1920 season was much like the 1919 one for the White Sox. They were right in the thick of the pennant race. Joe Jackson was a hitting machine. Eddie Seacott was dominant. Ballpark attendance was up, and Comiskey was making money hand over fist. Then it all falls apart. So Hmm. three things happened during the 1920 season that finally exposed the ugly gambling underbelly of organized baseball. First... Cincinnati Reds star Hal Chase was publicly accused by a disgruntled former teammate of fixing games, and the teammate had proof. Oh. Second. Oh, yeah. It was bad. Okay. Hal Chase Hal Chase also gets banned eventually. 
Uh, second, the Pacific Coast League's championship was cast into doubt with allegations that it had been fixed. And finally, a series of late August meaningless games between the Chicago Cubs and the Philadelphia Phillies came under investigation as being fixed as well. Hmm. The Cubs owner, William Wrigley, was angry that his Pacific Coast League team might have been cheated out of a championship, and he made a public disclosure of the fix reports. Finally, that caught the attention of American League President Ban Johnson and Cook County Judge Charles McDonald. McDonald was a big baseball fan, and the suggestion that the sport might not be on the level caused him, gave him cause to impanel a grand jury to look into the matter. Oh boy, he wasn't kidding around. <laughs> he was not. <laughs> you can't now, mess with a, my sport. No, and this is the crazy thing, okay? Mm-hmm. The grand jury deliberations were not kept secret. They weren't kept closed huh. by baseball's request. <laughs> Uh, Major League Baseball wanted to clear up the stink of scandal and felt that being open and transparent throughout the process was the only way to do that. Sure. So the grand jury indicted the eight men involved in the fix. Eddie Seacott, Chick Gandel, Joe Jackson, Lefty Mm. Williams, Happy Felsch, Swede Risberg, Fred McMillan, and Buck Weaver was indicted as well, given that he had knowledge and did nothing to stop it. Yeah. Okay. I, I hate that one so much. Anyway. So Eddie Seacott and Joe Jackson testify under oath that they had received money to throw the series, but they also both testified that they had done nothing to actively lose the series and had played to win at all times. Uh, They named the other players in the conspiracy and both named Chick Gandel as the ringleader. Mm -hmm. One by one, the players were called in to testify and all basically said the same thing. They had taken the money, but had not tried to play badly. In the words of Happy Felsch, they hadn't needed to. Uh, They just lost. (laughs) Buck Weaver, on the other hand, admitted to knowledge about the conspiracy, but also testified that he had tried to tell Comiskey, had taken no money, and was not involved. Mm -hmm. And it's important to note that his play on the field seems to back up that assertion, as he and Joe Jackson were bright spots in an otherwise troubled lineup. Okay. Chick Gandel also testified that he was completely innocent, but couldn't explain his sudden influx of wealth and the fact (laughs) that every other player was like, nah, it's him. So I have to say, I really like that, that attitude yeah. of, oh yeah, no, I'm completely innocent. where did this extra $35,000 no come from? I where that I, money came I, from. I have no idea, sir. Of yeah. course I spent it, but <laughs> probably a right, gift. So, okay. So the grand jury handed down criminal charges on October 29th, 1920. Mm-hmm. So keep in mind that they were all allowed to play pretty much the entire 1920 season. I mean... With this whole stink hanging over them, they still got to just If they don't play, who's going to play? Exactly. Uh, So the charges are five counts of conspiracy to obtain money by false pretenses and or confidence game. And the newspapers, who love a good headline, begin to refer to the disgraced players as the Black Sox. Mm. All right. That does sound so ominous. It's such a good name, right? (laughs) It's so good. All right, so the criminal trial was weird, with a lot of things happening around it that would later give rise to conspiracy theories and bad faith speculation. Mm-hmm. The first of which was that the state's attorney who had presided over the grand jury had just lost re-election. So a new state's attorney comes in, looks at the case, and he finds out that the case was actually pretty badly constructed. Uh, the underlying investigation was incomplete, And the grand jury testimony of Seacott, Jackson, and Williams was all missing. Oops. Um, Yep. 
There was also an implied agreement with those men that they were testifying in exchange for immunity, but there was no such agreement in place. Mm -hmm. And their defense attorneys started to cry foul about that. Yeah, no Um, kidding. (laughs) No kidding, right? Uh, Without the ability to pull a full case together in time for the trial date, the new state's attorney had no choice but to dismiss the charges, Mm -hmm. impanel a new grand jury, and go after them again. So the new grand jury hands down basically the same indictments, including not only the players, but all of the gamblers that they've been able to identify. Okay. So the prosecution's case was now in much better shape, but they lacked a smoking gun until... They struck a deal with Sleepy Bill Burns. Remember him? Sleepy Bill. Sleepy Bill. So Sleepy Bill Burns, being the original gambler that Chick Gandle had come to, mm-hmm. agrees to be a witness for the prosecution in exchange for immunity. And he was brilliant for them. All of the transcripts of him being on the stand are amazing to read. They are just hilarious. Um, and he, he does a great job for the prosecution. Also, the missing grand jury testimony wasn't actually a big deal. It sounds like it would be a huge deal. Did they have yeah, it to... sounds like it would be a big deal, but all they all they had to do was reconstruct it from the notes of these stenographers that were there. Okay. So like it, it's sort of like, yes, you lost the copy, but you have it you have a duplicate copy saved on a backup drive just to upload that one. Well but it's stenography. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. but it, but it's still it's still there. And and the other thing there's a rumor around these things that these were signed confessions. They weren't. They were grand jury testimony. Anyway, they make a big deal about uh Joe Jackson had to sign a confession with an X cuz he was illiterate. Joe Jackson was uneducated. He came from a mill town. Mm-hmm. Uh he had to go to work at the age of like 8 or 9. He never had the chance to really he he was illiterate, but he was far from stupid. And I really hate these sort of fictions around Joe Jackson that was like, you know, he wasn't very smart. Well, he didn't have he was any shoes. Very smart. Okay, so the shoeless Joe Jackson <laughs> thing comes from when he was playing in the mill leagues. He had a pair of cleats mm-hmm. that were really bothering his feet, and he kicked them off when he came up to bat once, smashes a great hit, and just goes tearing around the bases barefoot. Barefoot. So okay. that's where shoeless Joe comes from. Anyway, so they reconstruct the missing grand jury testimony from the stenographer's notes. But the prosecution really kind of screws up their case by just barraging the jury with facts and figures. And the defense, it is worth pointing out, the defense was led by pretty much the best lawyers in the Midwest. Sure. For the ballplayers. Now, the ace in the hole for the defense was actually White Sox club secretary, Harry Grabener. I'm probably mispronouncing that. But basically, his testimony showed that neither Charles Comiskey nor the White Sox organization had suffered financially from the fix. I'm sorry. So if you haven't been financially injured by it, I right? gotcha. Yep. <laughs> sorry. That and then took the me a defense <laughs> attorneys, and then the defense attorneys did an incredibly smart thing. They rested. They just stopped. Sure. It had been expected that the ball players would be called on to testify in their defense, which would have opened up the door for the prosecution to call rebuttal witnesses. Mm-hmm. All right. So with the abrupt resting, the defense stated that there was no need to make the players testify as the state had not made a case against them. Okay. The jury took less than three hours to return a not guilty verdict and the judge concurred. Hmm. Not guilty. However, the celebrating players would not do so for long. So the team owners, who were desperate to clean up the game's image, had appointed for the first time a commissioner of baseball. And the man that they had chosen for the job was noted baseball fan and federal judge, Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Okay. We don't have the time to go into the life and times (laughs) of Judge Landis, 
But he was a piece of work, and he had been given unprecedented power over baseball with no limitations on the actions he could take on behalf of the game. Interesting. Yeah. So he issued a statement that began with, quote, regardless of the vote of juries, end quote, Mm -hmm. and he permanently banned the eight accused and acquitted players from baseball for life. Major league, minor league, any baseball whatsoever? Any baseball. Okay. Anything that is affiliated with organized baseball, you are banned for life. So Kennesaw Mountain was pretty pissed. Kennesaw Mountain Landis saw these guys as an excellent chance to basically in one fell swoop remove the gambling and game fixing stink from the game. Oh, honey. They weren't scapegoated. They did conspire to fix the world series but they were acquitted but they were acquitted sure but it was it was a very clear message you know because before this you wouldn't even get a slap on the wrist Mm -hmm. you 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 could you could throw games and it wouldn't really matter if you got caught everybody just looked the other way with this it was no no you get caught you are banned for life okay taking the hard line exactly all right now Joe Jackson, Happy Felsch, Swede Risberg, and Buck Weaver all start civil litigation against baseball, mostly on the grounds of breach of contract. Right. So only Jackson's went to trial, and his trial is where a lot of weird stuff comes up, because during his, uh, his civil trial, his breach of contract trial, he testifies that he, is, he was not involved in the fix and had no connection to the conspiracy. Bold move. So the judge jails him for perjury Mm -hmm. (laughs) and vacated the jury's finding for him. The innocent finding. Because you're either lying now or you were lying then. Oh, Joe. I know. It sucks. Um, No, not the the previous jury. The jury of his uh, breach of contract trial. Okay, gotcha. They were going to award him something like (laughs) $16,000, but which would have been, which would have been about... Three or four seasons pay for him. Sure. And the judge vacates that. Okay. So all four of these cases are eventually settled. Uh, and the 1919 fix faded from public consciousness until the death of Joe Jackson in 1951. And now we got to get into 1963. In 1963, the writer Elliot Asinoff wrote a book purporting to be a factual account of the scandal called Eight Men Out. Mm -hmm. The book is very well written. It is very entertaining. There is an amazingly great, like, all-time good baseball movie. Uh, It came out in 1988 with the same name, Eight Men Out. It stars John Cusack, uh, David Strathairn. I don't know how to pronounce his name. I hope I did that right. Uh, It's got a ton of actors in it who were like either just pre-fame or were just starting to come to fame. Mm -hmm. Charlie Sheen's in it. Christopher Lloyd's in it. No kidding. In a a weirdly straight role, by the way. He's really good in it. He plays Sleepy Bill Burns. Yeah, I can see that. The problem is that Asanoff wrote this book using some people who uh, were not what we would call reliable sources. And also he didn't actually have access to the court records, which were still sealed at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So most of the book is unfortunately historically inaccurate and has a bunch of fictional inventions. uh, A few of which were done to uh, protect Asanoff's copyright. Okay. He he just threw in these made up things uh, so that he knew that if anybody tried to cite them as fact, he'd be like, ah, that's from my book. You can't do that. So 
The problem with this is that over time, Asanoff's version of the events overtook and overshadowed the real facts of the case. So uh, we're going to clear up a few of the biggest ones now. Oh boy. All right. Okay. Number one. Comiskey was a miser, paying his players a pittance. Uh, So this is a rumor that's been around forever. It was that uh, Charles Comiskey didn't even pay his players like a living wage, even though they were some of the best in baseball. Absolutely not true. They were some of the highest paid in baseball. Okay. Number two, this is a very persistent rumor. Eddie Seacott. Uh, Eddie Seacott was due a $10,000 bonus if he won 30 games that season. To prevent him from paying it out, Comiskey had Seacott benched once he'd won 29 games. Hmm. That would have been a delightfully petty move, but no, none of that's true either. Seacott actually started a game after his 29th win, pitched very badly, causing him to get pulled, and... Forgetting all that, there's no such stipulation in his contract for that year. And considering that his entire paycheck for 1919 was around $5,000, it's hard to believe he'd be offered literally double his entire season's pay as an incentive. Yeah, that does seem pretty It It, it doesn't pass any kind of test. Okay. I mean, now, Comiskey did offer incentives to some of his players. Eddie Collins hit a batting average incentive and got paid an extra 500 bucks. Hey. So, you know, that's not bad. So he's more of the $500 incentive than yeah, the, yeah. the well, $10,000 incentive. Think about what $500 is in 1919. Like, that is a chunk of change. It's a lot of shoes, for sure. I mean, Chick Gandal was able to retire on $35,000. let us let us not, let us not. <laughs> to you know, California. To California. Exactly. All right, so number three, Arnold Rothstein, the New York gambling kingpin, was the big bankroll behind the scandal. Okay, so there's no direct evidence of this, although there is some evidence of Rothstein bankrolling some of the bankrollers, <laughs> if you follow. He's a shadowy, a shadowy uh, yeah, figure. Yeah, okay. at, at the very best you could say about this was that he was the man behind the man behind the man for some of them. Okay. But remember that there were at least three or four separate bands of gamblers all engaged with different people on the White Sox. And Rothstein was not the man behind the man of all or most of them. Isn't that the position where you would want to be as a smart person once you saw how yeah. <laughs> how these how bad these guys were at keeping a secret? Well, not only that, <laughs> but how badly the, the odds fixed uh, switched so quickly. Right. You want to bet on an eight to one underdog. You don't want to bet on a four to five winner you know? right it's okay weird. yeah all right uh number four this is another big one um the reason that lefty williams pitched so badly in game eight was that a hitman threatened to kill his wife before the start oh no right? this is uh one of the two literary inventions of elliot Asanoff for his book with the intent to protect his copyright okay from all that we can tell lefty williams just had a bad start man or, or he was intentionally having a bad start to try to throw the game, but mm-hmm. it wasn't because somebody showed up and, you know, threatened to kill him or his wife. Okay. All right. Number five, and this is my favorite. Uh, the Black Sox were the only game fixers, and once baseball had kicked them out, the sport was clean again. Oh, oh no, honey. my sweet summer child. Even I uh, know that can't be right. <laughs> no. Uh, early 1900s gambling and sports were inextricably linked from fixed horse races to baseball games. Sure. And until Kennesaw Mountain Landis started hitting players with lifetime bans over it, baseball was fairly crooked. Uh, In all, dozens of players were banned from baseball over gambling during this time period Mm -hmm. until it stopped. Okay. All right. Number six, the big fix wasn't known until the grand jury blew the roof off the scandal. No. Uh, Hugh Fullerton, 
remember him, sounded the alarm right as the series ended, and Charles Comiskey may have known about it before the series even started. Yeah, it sounds Uh, like dozens of people knew about it before the series even started. Okay. Um, And and there's a source that said that uh, Kid Gleason, the team's manager, even heard about it and warned his players off it before the series. Um, (laughs) That source isn't backed up, but, you know... It wouldn't surprise me because everybody else seemed to know about it. Mm-hmm. All right, number seven, the grand jury confessions were stolen, and that's why the prosecution's case couldn't convict them. As we talked about, the missing conf- confessions weren't confessions. They were grand jury testimony, uh, and they weren't a big deal. They were just reconstructed uh, from the stenographer's notes and entered into evidence. Honestly, entering them into evidence may have damaged the case because they were so long and so boring mm. that... Um, there are there were a couple sources who were talking about jurors like nodding off during it, um, and the testimony of the of of the White Sox's club secretary did far more damage to the prosecution's case. Oh, interesting. Okay. All right. Now this is one of my favorites, uh, and this is the last the last rumor we're gonna we're gonna be puncturing here. There is a persistent rumor that Shoeless Joe Jackson, after he was banned, played baseball in other leagues like spring leagues and outlaw leagues Ooh. under assumed names yeah i was just gonna say did he have a disguise right? yeah grow a mustache grow your hair out yeah yeah the reality is far less entertaining uh he went home and opened a liquor store with his wife where is home so, for him uh carolinas no kidding and the liquor store is there to this day <laughs> uh i don't know about the liquor store i should i should uh I should I should check on that. Uh, yeah, he he moved back to Greenville, South Carolina, opened a barbecue restaurant, and then opened Joe Jackson's liquor store. <laughs> I mean, you got that name recognition. What do you want to do with it? That's that's right? not a bad I choice. Mean, yeah, a lot of ex you know sports guys open car dealerships. I would have he, opened a shoe store. I think the branding on that is just too good. Oh man, yeah. big missed opportunity. Come on now. Oh wow. Uh, also, sad to say, the famous "Say it ain't so, Joe." moment uh never happened this is a story that a newspaper reporter invented uh saying that uh after joe jackson gave his testimony that said that he had fixed games a little kid you know a little tyke comes up to him outside and says say it ain't so joe and joe jackson just looks mournfully at the child and then gets in his cab and goes none of that happened the writer who did that you're not telling me that news reporters are making stuff up too i am telling you that 1919 baseball writers would make up anything to get their headlines oh boy and and what's great about this is that the guy is very upfront about no 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 i just invented that whole thing isn't that great writing (laughs) i love writing for sure (laughs) all right so of all the players involved in the scandal, it's worth pointing out that while most were fine baseball players, mm-hmm. Joe Jackson was a legitimate Hall of Famer, and Eddie Seacott had an outside chance of getting into the Hall of Fame. Joe Jackson set hitting records that are still among the best today. Really? Like, some of his records still stand. And their teammates, who were not part of this scandal, both Eddie Cocky Collins and Red Faber, are in the Hall of Fame. Hmm. Red Faber, by the way, didn't pitch at all during that series because he caught the flu. And there are a lot of people uh, on the on the White Sox who, who basically stated that if, if Faber had pitched, they wouldn't have been able to fix the series because he was, one, that good, and two, never would have gone for it. Interesting. So, and it is very much worth pointing out that to his dying day, Buck Weaver protested against his banishment, maintained that he'd never been involved, and the other conspirators pretty much backed this statement up. 
And that's it. That's the 1919 Black Sox scandal, and then everything was fine, and professional sports never had any trouble ever again. The end. Well, I have to say that was a wild ride. Yeah, isn't it nuts? Like, just, I, I can't not only wrap my head around, like, <laughs> you go, you're, you're going to fix the game. You're going to do it without getting your payment up front. Mm-hmm. You're going to do it without even knowing that these guys can pay you. And then you're not actually going to fix them because you're just yeah. going to play as well as you can and just get straight beat by the Reds. It happens, man. It's just like it's a huge leap of faith. And then you're like, it's almost like they forgot about it. <laughs> or they were just like, you know what? That idea was kind of crazy. We're not going to do that. Well, and the other thing was that after they didn't get paid for the first two games, mm-hmm. like that's when a lot of people th- there, there is a definite faction of, of scholars of the Black Sox. That point to that as being like they didn't they they stopped trying to fix games after the second game because they didn't get paid. Wouldn't you? <laughs> I mean, I mean you're, right? You're putting your I mean, career Chip on Gandel the line. Got paid. You're not getting your you know you're missing out on your five hundred dollar exactly. bonus. <laughs> you're not right? even getting your ten thousand dollars or whatever. Oh, uh, I wouldn't Chip fix Gandel a got game. Paid. So there's a lot to be said for. I mean, they did they testify before the grand jury that they did you know, take the money with the express intent of fixing the World Series. Okay. But they just, they just never had to because they just straight up lost. Everybody is scamming everybody here. I love it. I love it so much. Except for Buck Weaver. I feel real bad for Buck Weaver. Yeah. In the film, by the way, in Eight Men Out, he's played by John Cusack. Oh. And he's very sympathetic in that movie. It's a weird little snapshot of professional sports in the early 1900s because they just... None of them had any doubt that they could get away with this, and this mm-hmm. was just business as usual. Yeah, definitely uh, definitely says something about... <laughs> yep. <laughs> I mean, it says something about the culture of sports at the time, because it's like, nowadays, you can't have... Like, like if you went to a modern-day baseball club and mm-hmm. were like, I'm going to pay each of you boys $5 million apiece to throw the World Series so I make a bunch of money, they'll laugh you out of there. Well... First of all, Greg, they would know that you don't have $5 million apiece. Uh... Well, I'm not saying me. I'm saying <laughs> my, my hypothetical fat cat gambler. Okay. Who, for some reason, talks like he's from 1930s Oklahoma. Arnold the Seventh. Okay. Arnold the Seventh, yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's just But yeah, it's it's, you know, we me. tend to think of sports in the old time days being so much more, you know, a, a more pure and honest form. Right, of, right, right. Not the sport. Yeah. Okay. My favorite thing about this is that this this was the last World Series that took place before they banned the spitball. Oh, boy. <laughs> that makes me so happy. <laughs> what did Kennesaw Mountain think about the spitball? Oh, he did not like it, sir. <laughs> I'm banning you. Stop spitting. And the weirdest thing was, as soon as they banned the spitball, uh-huh. all of a sudden. Okay, so Babe Ruth hits 54 home runs in a season. Yeah, he the does. previous record had been 7. Yeah. Like that's what happens when you eliminate the fact that I can make a ball literally unhittable. It's great. It's, it's just great. Well, you know. All right. Sports. That was a good sports, sports episode. Thank you. I I love it. I love it. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com, or if you'd like to shame us publicly, why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters. 
Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My sister has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Ella? Well, you know, Greg, we have not done a Civil War disaster. Oh, no. And it's time. Uh, the whole thing was a disaster. <laughs> what are we going to focus on? Well, we are... <laughs> Or is it not the American Civil War? Are we going to focus on the the English Civil War? You know what? I Spanish should be more Civil specific. War? This is the American Civil War. Uh, oh boy. We're going okay. to look at the sinking of the CSS HL Hunley. That is oh, no. a submarine, Greg, that was way ahead of its oh, no. time and uh, incredibly deadly. Yeah. Sank a bunch okay. of times. Drowned a bunch of people. It did. It did. <laughs> they had a really hard time, for some reason, getting their underwater boat to work. Underwater boat made of cast iron. Yep. That had no engines yep. and no electricity. Nope. Yeah. Yep. It's a great story. Yep. It's actually, like, it's, from an engineering standpoint, it's actually oh, a from an engineering really standpoint, fascinating, it's fascinating story. But, but it's, like, nine little disasters rolled into one. I cannot wait to talk about this one with you. <laughs>